She didn't marry as her five sisters had. She didn't pursue a degree in the arts, nor did she live a domesticated life after receiving an education. She was a botanist. She was a driven character. She was a pioneer, both in the period of the British Raj and post-petition, and she was awarded the Padma Shri in 1977, the fourth highest civilian award in the Republic of India. Her name was Janaki Amal Edavalat Kakad, the sugarcane scientist. And this is what my episode is all about. But before we explore and go jungly, I'd like to make a quick mention to my friend Dan from The Past Less Travelled. What is going on, everybody? My name is Dan Romagno, and I'm the creator and host of The Past Less Travelled podcast. The Past Less Travelled podcast explores some of the most interesting places, persons, and events that you never knew you wanted to learn about. Each episode is an information-packed journey into some of the lesser-known histories of the world. With episodes ranging from ancient Macedonia to John Adams' role in the Boston Massacre, you will surely find a topic that piques your interest. Each episode is 10 to 20 minutes long, so you can fit this podcast into any part of your day. You could find The Past Less Traveled on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and any other platform you may use. You can also stay up to date with episode announcements and enjoy more history content on my Instagram at the past less traveled, all one word, and on Twitter at the past less traveled. That's P A S T L E S S T R A V E L D. Tune in weekly to get your fill of some of the most interesting places, persons, and events that you never knew you wanted to learn about. And remember, we are all trapped in history, and history is trapped in all of us. I hope you guys take the time to listen to Dan's podcast because it's really interesting. But now we return to Janaki Amal's story. So let's get cracking. Greetings and salutations, history nerds. This is The Power of Bessa. And today we're traversing into some unknown territory for me, the south of India, Kerala, by which I mean I've never studied it, nor physically been to South India, so food recommendations are most welcome, so long as they're vegetarian. Joining me today is Dr. Vinita Damodaran, to explore and find out who Janaki Amal really was. First, I hear you ask, why call this episode The Sugarcane Scientist? What's significant about the name that I've given it? Well, first off, it's a catchy title, you can't deny it. Second, it actually refers to why Janaki Amal is is famous in the first place. So when you search, the, the very first search results on Google, it will actually talk about this. This is the kind of main highlight, and it's the main highlight because this is what her specialty was. It was um, the genetics of, of plants and of crops specifically and um, hybrids. So she's known for her her work in breeding ganna or sugarcane as well as bengen or aubergine so she in 1934 she worked as a uh, geneticist in the sugarcane breeding institute in tamil nadu that was when she developed a better sugarcane crop uh, because before it was being imported from places like um, indonesia and because of this it managed she managed to yield a sweeter sugarcane crop which was not only better suited to India's climate, but it meant less pressure to import crops like sugarcane from outside of India. So from then on, it actually provided a way for India to create its own independent sugarcane industry. 
But what shocks me is that in your paper, Gender, Race and Science in the 20th Century India, um, Vinita, is that is that it's one of the few papers, I guess, that talks about her history. Because online you can't really find much in the ways of history. You can find newspaper articles that praise her. And even then, they've only been written between 2018 and 2020 anyway. Yeah, that's a, it was sparked off by this paper, in fact. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Um, so what inspired you to write about Janaki Amal? It came as a surprise to me that the papers of an Indian woman scientist um, were carefully stored in the Bodleian Library in Oxford. Wow. So that enabled me to, as a historian, to ferret out a little more. And I realized that she had been um, in close communication with a series of very well-known British biologists and scientists. And the papers, her papers were stored uh, alongside the papers of C.D. Darlington. Yes. Who was the director of the John Innes Institute. Uh, from uh, the in the 1940s, and so I realized that not just she, was she quite well networked, she was also a formidable scientist in her own right, mm. as the letters went on to reveal. Um, so, could you just um, unpack for us what was the kind of environment of the British Raj for scientific discovery? So, as we know, uh, the colonial period is a quite an important period in terms of bringing modernity to India. So that was the that is the word, word that the colonizers used. India was steeped in superstition and tradition, while uh, Western science and reason were to be uh, embraced. And this was an idea that early Indian intellectuals also embraced. At the same time, there were Indian uh, scientists uh, who also understood that India's scientific tradition needed to embrace, especially if you're looking at subjects such as um, the field sciences, uh, traditional indigenous knowledge. Uh, and this is particularly true for botany, where uh, Janaki Amal is located, because bot botany relies on local folk knowledge, on understandings of uh, classification, and India had a very, very important tradition of botanical knowledge going back to medicinal plants and medicinal healing. Uh, and those were the traditions, I think, that um, which are ethnobotany, which Janaki Amal sought to revive uh, through her work. Wow. The only tradition I could think of in Punjab is how to properly eat a golgappa, but that's, that's it. <laughs> uh, there is a, I'm telling you, there is a correct way to eat it. You just stuff it in your mouth, that's it. That's all you do. <laughs> None of this spoon bowl act. Just eat with your yeah, hands. Yeah, yeah, I know. And this is a delicious feeling when you eat that gold. Oh, yeah. So, what was what were women's roles like within the science community? Because I assume it was very male dominated. So, uh, I, as we know, the women in science had a, a very limited role, not just in India but elsewhere as well. In the West, it's very interesting. Botany began to be associated with women. In India, uh, with the importation of Western education, women did embrace, um, especially elite women, did take to education in a big way. And that was quite surprising, especially uh, if you look at other sci scientific uh, sort of subjects. In Indian women do, were going to colleges in uh, Calcutta, in Madras, um, and so on. And that, I think, and Bombay. And that, that, was, that was quite interesting and quite important for us. And Janaki Amal, uh, was educated in the Western um, traditions in uh, in school. In terms of her schooling, she went to Sacred Heart Con Convent in Telichery. And later on, she went to Madras Christian College. And that's where 
she got a very, very interesting and important scholarship, uh, which was from the University of Michigan in 1924 uh, to study botany uh, in 28. And that was the Oriental Barber Scholarship. Wow. So this wasn't actually the typical narrative of girls weren't allowed to go to school. They weren't allowed to get an education. But actually, in the period of the British Raj, it's actually the opposite of what we would typically perceive. So they were giving greater allowance to women getting a higher education. And one thing that you need to understand about the opportunities offered by the Raj, the Raj itself was um, uh, an institution that limited um, economic development that we do know because of the heavy taxation policies of the British the way in which industrialization was thwarted. At the same time, they had introduced, as we said, Western education um, uh, and and girls' education in particular. And that did mean that uh, lower castes and women, especially who came from uh, more wealthier backgrounds, were able to take those opportunities and move out of uh, caste restrictions and gender restrictions. And as a way of uh, moving upwards of social mobility in Bengal and in Madras and in Bombay, uh, male patriarchs uh, did encourage their daughters, especially among um, the Hindu community, to go to school and then uh, to university. But again, this is a class issue and it is uh, it is quite remarkable how this process uh, developed in India among women. Yeah you know it's fascinating because the papers that were written in the 1920s and 30s they do talk about how how India was changing and allowing women to to get an education and how they the universities were opening doors to, you know, not just art colleges, but to things like engineering and, and the medical profession. You know, this this might sound like a really cliche question, but it's kind of important when we're, when we're looking at this period. Um, so she had to fight against norms that, I guess, prevented try or tried to prevent her from achieving her goals. So how did being... I, I, I think she's... It said she was a low-caste. She was, she was, she was low-caste, wasn't she? Was, she came from a low-caste background. Okay. Yes. So how did being a low-caste Indian woman affect her journey to, to, being, to being who she was? So I think, again, it's a very, very good question, Serena, because, because she, was, she was also mixed race. Yes, yeah. So she was on, those bo- she was on the boundary yeah. of um, caste and race. And she was able to understand and cross over ah. uh, in that it gave her more freedom of a sort um, to make these very interesting encounters that she then forged. And her personality, I think, was also quite interesting. She chose, as you correctly pointed out, not to get married, mm. not to follow in the trajectory of her sisters. Her sisters also found marriage quite difficult. Marriage was not an easy option for them either, because as you know, India is, is, is a very uh, restricted society when it comes to establishing purity of caste heritage and purity of uh, heritage in general for marital reasons. So in some senses, her choice of not, not to marry was also um, dependent on the fact that it wasn't quite an easy option either for her sisters. So she then chose this remarkably lonely, but not to her, life of a uh, and career in science 
Yeah, and between studying abroad for a degree and making gobby for your husband, I'm afraid it's a no-brainer. Plus, I'm not actually very good at making gobby. Listeners, you've been duly warned. And the paper I mentioned um, earlier on in the episode, you called Janaki Amar the Cinderella of the sugarcane station. So what did you mean by this? What was going on once she was in the world of work? She's already beginning to work, as you correctly pointed out, on uh, sugarcane, right? And she goes to Coimbatore to work in the Sugarcane Breeding Institute, where she's crossing plants like saccharum with zia. So these are all grasses and producing intergeneric um, hybrids. And that work produces amazing results, uh, including the uh, articles which are published in Nature, which is the premier scientific journal of the time in the 1930s. And this is where she gets thwarted by the male Brahminical establishment, um, like C.S. Venkatraman, who's the head of the Breeding Institute, and is quite jealous of her. And she comes across a lot of male jealousy, not among her male mentors. So it's including um, uh, C.D. Darlington, who damns her with faint praise. Sorry, just a quick footnote here. So um, Cyril Dean Darlington, or C.D. Darlington, as we've been calling him uh, for the past, what, 10 minutes maybe? Um, Darlington was appointed the director of the John Innes Institute in 1939 before Janaki Amal worked there between 1940 and 1945. And the letters are very indicative of the jealousy that she faces routinely among uh, the male establishment. Yeah, no, no, his um, his letters were interesting, to say the least. And uh, I read I read some of his correspondence and, you know, I, I thought I'd pick out one part that kind of stuck out to me. So this excerpt was taken from a letter written by Darlington in 1937 to John Russell, and uh, his name may sound familiar to you, but just in case you don't know, he was a British agricultural scientist, and he was also the director of Rothamsted Experimental Station. So this excerpt reads, I think it is a great pity that numbers of Indians come to this country to take PhDs in cytology just because they think it is an easy subject and, having obtained their PhDs, which they never fail to do, return to secure post in India. We refuse to take such people here. So here you get the sense of, you know, it's not just a passing racial comment, but it's the idea that, you know, his belief in the inferiority of Indians. But in academia, he's talking about how there's a kind of lack of, of creativity or originality or something that they just they just learn, get their degrees and then they just go home. Yes, no, no, absolutely. It's about the way in which these are not original or creative thinkers. Uh, these are people who do cytology, which is just, um, uh, you know, understanding plant cellular structure, which is nothing creative. But the the point is, Janaki was was much more than just a cytologist. She was actually uh, creating these intergeneric hybrids. She was extremely innovative in her scientific understandings. She um, produced uh, these hybrids, which then flowered. And 20 years later, when some of them had flowered, and she wrote, in excitement to her mentor, uh, C.D. Darlington, that you know you never believed that some of these uh, hybrids would flower. Well, mine has flowered in my laboratory in Madurovel in Madras. He says, fine, very grudgingly, I'll 
uh, get your paper published in science. And then he writes to the editor of science, here is a paper that I've been sponsoring for the last 20 years. No. I mean, that is the level of um, male uh, patronizing jealousy that she gets, you know. Um, but she never really is critical of them. She just does her work very quietly in her laboratories. I'm sorry, I just, I just have to say this, but it's, it's just so typically Indian that she just doesn't care. She just puts her head down and, and works. She just gets on with it. Cause, yeah, because it, it feels like, you know, with, with what we've been saying about Darlington, it's that it, he reflects the attitudes that encompass the kind of discrimination that would have been experienced in this period. And uh, not only would Janaki Amal have had to experience it, but so did a lot of Indians in general, because there was, um, wasn't it the Institute of Chemistry, Indian School of Chemistry, sorry, and it was Prafula Chandra Ray who, who founded it, and he counted only something like under 20 Indian students amongst 200 non-Asian students, which, which is, um, I, I'm speechless, I don't really know what to say to that. And, it, and also just, it feels like it continues the thought process of Darlington, because there are so few Indian students there, that means that they don't have the capacity to continue their research in an innovative fashion. But it was interesting because didn't he still send her samples to identify? Yes, he did. So he did. You know, yeah, he, because Darlington is very, very um, interesting. So this is the context. The context of the science also you must understand. Here is a formidable Indian woman scientist. But the men who are she's relating with, um, the, they're Brahmins and in, Brahmin men in India. And in England, they are upper, upper class men who are eugenicists. Because this is the early, the beginnings, 1931, R.A. Fisher from UCL, who is very, very closely linked to um, Nazi ideas even, is, uh, is started the British, British Eugenic Society. So eugenics and race are very closely uh, linked. So this is the remember this is the prehistory of genetics. So they are looking at plants, they are looking at cells, they are looking at the chromosome, right? So um, Darlington is known as the man by his biographer as a man who invented the chromosome. But this understanding of the chromosome is leading to um, understanding genetics. But till 1950, till the UNESCO um, statement, which um, discards the whole idea of uh, race following the terrible genocide of the Second World War, eugenics is quite fashionable among um, British scientists. And so C.D. Darlington is uh, a eugenicist, uh, alongside his very interesting work um, heading the John Innes Institute in um, London. But he's also asking Janaki for data on castes and tribes of India to uh, fulfill his vision on... Um, the genetic map ah. of the world, you know. And she, um, wittingly or unwittingly, is supplying that information to him uh, to feed uh, into his... Uh, so he quite, you know, he clearly believes that the whites are a superior race, that um, Asians are inferior, and certainly Asian women are far more inferior, you know. So you have to fit in this narrative into the larger picture of eugenics and race and racial theories, yeah. Of that time, I don't know. It's, just, it's it's a bit odd because did he still respect her or her work at least? And you you'd think that he would have some kind of support for her because he he didn't exactly start off 
in you know quite high in the ranks he had he's i think he started off as an unpaid intern in the institution and then he had to work his way up i don't know i don't know if he held any sort of respect for her so i know i think he did the interesting thing is the correspondence in the bodleian reveals a 50 year correspondence between the two of them and he meticulously um answers every single letter he makes a he makes a note of when he's responded to her he's just, he's corresponding with a lot of people uh, the sad thing is the indians the indians have no respect uh for um archives so all Janaki Amal's papers are lost, oh. including her slide collection, no. including her library. And it is my effort to set up um, an institute in her memory or a museum in her memory. That'd be really good. Because she was such an incredibly important woman. And she was, um, you know, she believed quite clearly that India's um, botanical and environmental traditions were very rich. And that is an enormous sort of, a uh, lesson to us as we are sort of eroding our environment, eroding our plant base, um, creating homogenous um, environments, that India's environment is a very, very delicate environment. And she had studied this in great detail. And she had, and she knew about the subsistence economy of Indian agriculture very, very well. Um, so there's a lot to learn from her about how we respect our environment and respect our plant and respect our plant. So one question I was itching to ask was, why did she go into botany? What would she have gained by doing it? But that's quite a difficult question to answer. I mean, maybe this is a question that relates more to her past. So actually, I'm going to change the question a little bit and ask, what traditions did botany reflect in Janaki Amal's culture? Um, she comes from a tradition of, um, her caste tradition, as I said, is... Uh, lower caste, but the community she comes from, which are the Thiyas of uh, Malabar, have traditionally worked with plant medicine. Ah. So uh, there is that element that members of her family, and this would have been male members of her family, would have been traditionally healers and native medicine men or, or vaidyas. So vaidyas uh, and Ayurvedic um, plant knowledge in Kerala is very, very important. In fact, um, in the 17th century, when the Dutchman um, Van Reeder came to India, came to Kerala, he depended on the knowledge of um, Janaki Amal's uh, community to uh, both um, understand the plants of Malabar, but also categorize and classify uh, plants using the local knowledge of these um, medicine men. Okay. So even though she may not have directly practiced in the way you've just said, because her father was a judge in the Telachiri court, so they may not have directly practiced it, but she still understood, she at least understood the traditions in which her community had practiced it, and she understood the tradition of plant culture in her community. So was she still a modernist? She was an extremely modern thinker in the sense of her understanding of India's uh, environment and India's botany. She was challenging Western traditions, as I said. She was challenging Q in particular. You know, the Q tradition was very much where India was a, a subsidiary to their understanding of uh, world botany. So she was uh, putting forward India 
as quite a primary area region where you had to discuss and debate plants on their own terms, right? And they were much more uh, linked floristically to an Asian uh, uh, traditions of, uh, of of plants. So she was challenging the Q paradigm. And she was very upset that even after independence, uh, the person who was first appointed uh, in the beginning was uh, someone who Q wanted, right? So she um, had to fight to get her uh, herself recognized. Uh, and um, someone called Shantapu, who was appointed, who was a man in the Q tradition. So Qs continued to dominate. Right, and Q continued to remain dominant until the you know, until after independence, really. So the queue that you mentioned here isn't Kew Gardens, but it's actually a herbarium known as the Royal Botanic Gardens in Kew, which manages over 7 million plants, brought in from around the world and actually around the empire since its conception in 1853. So she died in 1984 and she lived through the period of petition. And it's not just that one part we should be looking at, but it's the progress post-petition as well. So she'd seen, obviously, how academia had changed and how science had changed. So did she have any fears about about what was what was happening in, in India, I guess, and what was happening in academia? Just because she must have seen as well the rate of progress which India was making and how far she wanted to modernise, especially under the Nehruvian government, because we know he was very keen on modernization. Yeah, so there was one thing that she was particularly upset about. It's about the way in which science was taken out of the university and put in national laboratories. So the idea was there was a debate um, at that time in the 1950s about where Indian science would reside. And Nehru, as India's premier, was torn between having science in the university, so students would be actively engaged in science and the laboratories would be in the university. There would be this synergy and this creativity or having them in nationalist institutions. And the debate was won um, by people like S.S. Bhatnagar, who believed that Indian science should be in these national laboratories, not as part of a creative tradition within the university and more autonomous, right? Science moved out of the universities into these uh, national laboratories. So you have the National Physical Laboratory, the National Botanical Laboratory, the National Chemical Laboratory. So all these laboratories were set up with scientists who were part of officialdom and rather than part of a scientific tradition that came out of with the young people and was generated within the university tradition. And that, I think, did change Indian science for the worse. So it became a much more utilitarian science and it killed science in the universities. And Amal and um, Meghnath Saha, who is another great um, scientist who uh, perhaps should figure in your uh, work, um, (laughs) both of them believe that science should remain part of the university tradition, but they failed. So it moved to these laboratories. And then um, Jani Kamal was very um, upset about the quality of the PhD student she was getting in botany. Uh, So if you look at Indian science today, if you compare it to China and so on, India's scientific publications are hardly um, internationally rated to the extent that China's is. So somehow, somewhere Indian science um, lost uh, the opportunity for uh, its creative sort of uh, zenith and lost its international sort of significance. And she was one of the last people who was very well known internationally. And that is a bit sad because India could have continued to remain very well integrated 
rather than having this narrow utilitarian perspective for science. So she criticized the institution, she but did, she you know, but she, you know, she did. She was a nationalist scientist, you know, in the sense that when Nehru asked her to reorganize the bot- botanical survey of India, she embraced that job and creating all these divisions and and um, and challenging Q. Uh, and and bringing to bear, uh, and, and she realized that you know Indian plants need, need to be understood in its own terms, and so she set up you know the laboratory in Jammu and Kashmir, and she set up various in Lucknow and so on. So she was part of a nationalist, um, innovative approach also to Indian botany through the Botanical Survey of India. It's only um, she realizes the importance of having a scientific tradition within the university that she was uh, upset. Mm, yeah I mean I also think she's a nationalist I'm not arguing against that but I know one of the other arguments she had against this was that through nationalizing the laboratories they became very elitist it became much more official yeah. so the scientific so it's been, what what it done then does is yeah it becomes um a, a very official sort of work that's being done by government appointed scientists uh, so you can see what, how it kills off um, individual initiative, uh, blue sky research, other sorts of thinking, which doesn't fit in with a national sort of agenda. And so you, it reduces creativity, reduces the chance that you might discover something very unusual uh, because you're just trained to do something along the lines of um, well-oiled track, you know, continue to research on this because that's what we want. We want these results. We want I'm sorry, this just sounds like the plot of Three Idiots, don't you think? <laughs> they're, just, they're just working and then just remembering everything and then just regurgitating it for the exam. And for those of you who haven't actually watched the movie, Three Idiots is, is quite good. I enjoyed it. Um, so before we start doing movie reviews, we're moving on. You know, on the point of, of government intervention in the field of science, it just kind of brings me back to the point you made about Q, about how she was fighting against the Q paradigm. So actually, even in a botanical institution like Q, there's still a bit of politic and power play. It's a very powerful imperial institution, which historically from the late um, 18th century had been harvesting Indian plants to serve um, Western um, interests. So, for example, you might have heard of tea and uh, coffee and uh, cocoa and so on. All these were plants gathered in the tropical world, and those plants were transferred in order to serve uh, British uh, or colonial interests of different colonial empires, right? And even plant, plant transfers are not apolitical. They are very, very political. So the history of, uh, of plant exchange and plant transfers is part of this understanding of how plants um, figure. And botany and politics go together. And the entire period between 1500 uh, and about 1900 is about plant, harvesting plant resources, right? So India becomes very, very important as a rich biodiverse place whose plants are very important for the pharmaceutical industry, whose plants are extremely important for, um, for example, like the tea industry, for coffee, uh, for uh, medicinal plants, which are harvested in Latin America, for example, for quinine uh, to combat malaria. Yeah? So, you know, plants are um, extremely important in the context of empire rivalry, right? Uh, and so uh, what Janaki Amal, in some senses, does is create a context for protecting our biodiversity 
and the interests of um, uh, these countries themselves, right? Yeah, and to follow on from this, wasn't she annoyed that the samples and, and things were still being sent to England, to Kew, so the Indian plants grown on and bred on Indian soil, but not being researched by Indians? Exactly. So that is why she was challenging the Kew paradigm. So in many ways, she was extremely interesting in all, because she was a far, you know, she was a far-reaching sort of thinker. Um and every time she felt disillusioned by the way in which science was going or the way in which she was being treated, um, she would say, oh, I need to run off and work with my tribal communities. You know, she had this very close connection with tribal communities. And um, that, again, is very, very interesting, as we're seeing the decimation of Aboriginal peoples and their environments around the world. So clearly in her life, she's been trying to find this balance between tradition and modernization, whether it's whether it's trying to use her traditional knowledge or her cultural knowledge about plants and what she knew and sort of grew up with, trying to match it alongside these new techniques whilst attempting to provide cultural context with Indian plants. Yeah, and because these, were, these, these peoples were the custodians of the landscape, you know, and the landscape was being eroded by modernization. So in, your, in answer to your question, was she modern? She understood the importance of science. She understood how important it was to feed India's large population through intergeneric hybrids and so on. But at the same time, she realized that too much uh, modernization, deforestation was extremely dangerous. You know, she she went everywhere in Assam in the 1950s looking for um, the Magnolia Griffithi sort of tree, and she found only one because of the deforestation, yeah. So she was, um, as I said, she realised how India's environment needed to be conserved. You know. So, so far, we've only spoken about Janaki Amal in the field of academia, but actually she branched out to many other areas. So what else did she do outside of academia? So she's um, working on uh, in, ag- in the field of agriculture. She's quite interested in ethnobotany. She is um, also la- later on becomes an environmental activist with the Silent Valley which is this beautiful, pristine forest in Kerala, which is uh, threatened with flooding in the 1970s because of, of a dam being built across the river by the government. And she joins hands with a lot of um, Indian scientists to say that this is a forest that should not be submerged by the dam. So she's one of India's early environmental campaigners. Um, and she successfully, along with other people, of course, successfully fights a campaign and the Silent Valley is not submerged by the dam, right? So there is her role in so many different, um, you know, if you, if you sort of analyze where she contributed, she contributed uh, in, to research, she contributed to uh, nationalist institution building in post-colonial India, uh, she contributed to environmental activism. So you, she ticks off all those uh, boxes. And she also is an icon for uh, female um, education. And she was a first woman in several different places, as we've just uh, pointed out here. The first female employee of the RHS. Yes, in your paper, you mentioned that she's in the Royal Horticultural Society in 1946. She's the first salaried female staff member, which is is amazing. Yeah, yeah. According to um, the University of Michigan, the first woman PhD uh, in botany in the world, you know, in that sense. So, you know, know, it's quite interesting. Yeah. 
she wrote a book as well, didn't she? Is this an, an important book that I guess also put her name on the map? She uh, co-wrote the Chromosome Atlas of Cultivated Plants, which was this enormous tome on every single cultivated plant in the world in history, uh, alongside C.D. Darlington. And not only did she co-write that book, um, she also was one of the main authors, as uh, it came to be seen uh, later on when it came to the second edition. And she withdrew her cooperation in the book. C.D. Darlington had a quite a difficult time finding a second author for the book. I mean, I feel like we should kind of summarise what, she did. I mean, you guys realise we've basically been through her whole life, regardless of her childhood, but she studied, studied, studied. Then she worked abroad in, you know, in America and in, in the UK. She came back to India in the 40s and worked basically within botanical institutions. But then, you know, when we get to the 70s and the 80s, she's working on environmental activism and conservation around India. And she died in 1984. So did she ever take a break? It just sounded like she never stopped working. No, she never took a break. No. Um, she re never really retired. She died in, in her, I mean, she died in hospital, but she was still working in her lab. Are they, you know, she was, she was a, you know, good old age of nearly ninety, you know. I mean, that's just the Indian mentality, as the old saying goes: "Marke aram hi karna." You work until you die, and obviously, Janaki Amal fit this saying to a T. FYI, this is usually the part where someone says "bilkul segala." In other words, yeah, I totally agree. So we've learned a lot from this episode, and yet. We mentioned all the uh, programs and associations she was involved with, so the BSI and John Inez, Royal Horticultural Society. But when you go onto these websites, there's almost nothing there. There's no footnote, there's no photo. I think on the RHS website, they mentioned a uh, rose named after Jana Giamal, but that's it. There's just no history about her. She's like It's like she's invisible. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, exactly. So the John Innes is terribly bad, and the RHS is very bad. RHS, she was the first female employee of the RHS. So RHS, some years ago, they had her in their timeline, and that timeline, you know, changed. You know, they they don't have her in that in the new edition on the web anymore. Yeah. So you know, as a public historian, one uh, you know, constantly, I'm trying for my work to challenge this to say that we really need uh, to have a visible um, in all these places but you know it's because it's such a it's such a white um, male dominated world you just have to keep repeating yourself for example the john innes has just instituted recently an ma uh, scholarship in her name last year but i've been trying to get the exhibition from india to RHS, and that has not had any joy. I mean, to um, John Innes, and that hasn't had any joy. So yeah, you know, it's a question of where they put their money. But isn't it just odd that no one's asked for a statue for her or wanted to name a laboratory after her or library or something? I think there is a beginning uh, now, and she's beginning to be recognised much more now. There was a taxonomy award instituted in her name, um, but her visibility as uh, a senior national scientist is uh, requires 
that she be given uh, more recognition uh, than she has as a woman, um, as a Dalit, if you could say. Yeah, so yeah, I would say that, that there's, a national, there's a whole issue of creating a museum around her work. Uh, for uh, as as a, as a uh, icon, as a beacon for other girls to study, uh, she is a she is a formidable role model. Yes. Do you think it's then our job as public historians to find things that have been dismissed and forgotten or not talked about and bring it back to to the public to say you've never heard of this? Or maybe you have, but you don't know. So here's something I think you should know. I think public history and much more engaged history, um, which is much more um, in this, in some senses, this is also about person, personal history being political. Uh, so it's where, um, uh, you know, India's past, which is now being rewritten in different ways um, to suit particular interests, as we know, as Hindu or as uh, homogenous is not necessarily the past that is right. The past is a very, very mixed bag, and it embraces uh, you know, figures such as Janaki Amal. She embraces matri- India's matriarchal traditions, India's tribal traditions, and India's multiple traditions. So that is what we should be celebrating in India today, not a homogenous vision or understanding of India. But I suppose this presentation, this homogenous view, as you said, it's also down to the issue that you brought up earlier in the episode, which is archives and preservation. And it's a shame, really, because whatever is preserved or whatever was thankfully preserved today is unfortunately a a view of India or Indians, etc., but through a British lens. So what we really should do, especially you know, as a public historian, is we need to rethink these sources that have been preserved and question a lot of it. Yeah, rethink, rethink, rethink a lot of our sources, um, how you get other sources, how you go against the archive, you read against the grain. I think public history requires an engagement with archives and sources, which, you know, sort of where you sort of go and say, we need your writings, we need your papers, we need people to transcribe you, you know. No, no, absolutely. I think that looking at the archives in India, what their roles were in the past and what their roles are, like how they apply today, is something that we really need to look at, but maybe in another episode because it's just, it's so extensive. So we're on the last couple of questions now and I think just to sort of finish off the episode, I wanted to know, why do you think Gandhi is on all the rupee notes? So it is very interesting that Gandhi um, is one of the world's leading anti-colonial figures, and legitimately he should be on the note. Uh, but the fact that he is now being um, forgotten, and as we speak, his ideas are being forgotten, uh, while he remains on the note, is uh, quite absurd. You know that we are moving away from Gandhian ideas, um, moving away from non-violence. Uh, Gandhi has been relegated to history while he's still on the note. So my suggestion is that um, we embrace Gandhi, not just this figure of Gandhi in in reality, but bring in other interesting characters as well who we've forgotten and whose values we need to embrace, like Janaki Amal. But wouldn't the government be a bit hesitant to put someone who, unfortunately, to, to kind of sum it down, 
someone who's a low caste to be on the rupee note. No, no. Because she was so, um, I mean, the Tias would see themselves as um, other backward castes, OBCs. Yeah, historically. Yeah. They're not in the scheduled, they're not in the schedule of the constitution. Yeah. You, know, you have the scheduled caste. So she's not part of the lowest branch, even though she was low caste. So it would be possible to have her on the note. Yeah, yeah, they would, they would, yeah. You know, she's Hindu, she's beginning to be recognised as an important figure, so some lobbying would is all that would be necessary, yeah. So I suppose just now a quick final comment from you would, would be great. What do you think of our roles as historians? What do you think of what we're trying to do, especially with regards to my podcast? What is it that you think is is something that the listeners should be taking away from this? You know, to understand that um, our marginal figures contribute enormously to society and that bringing to light um, their life and their careers and their achievements um, is, is very important for us as historians. And in many ways, uh, that should be one of our goals is to highlight the work of uh, hidden, the hidden histories of communities of women uh, through a range of different material, including oral narratives, um, diaries, uh, memoirs, um, which contradict and challenge official narratives of history, especially in patriarchal societies like India. Um, and to talk about the trials and tribulations of women such as her who who rose despite being, you know, um, being challenged and being oppressed. Um, so also allowing you to see the possibilities of uh, India in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s um it would be interesting right well i think i've pretty much drained all the answers i need from you so thank you to vinita brilliant thank you very much so there was obviously a lot to get through in today's episode and i appreciate you guys sticking around for this long um so thank you very much i really hope you enjoyed episode two the sugarcane scientist I also wanted to briefly include the idea of the preservation in Indian archives to you, just so you have some idea as to why such historical figures aren't really remembered or, you know, why their works haven't really been preserved. This also makes us appreciate, you know, how much we have available to us and how different the culture is about history and, and preservation and archives here in the UK is. I hope I've given you guys enough food for thought. Heck, I hope you're bloated with information now. So keep an eye out for episode three, The Controversial Christian, which should be coming vivi soon. And I'll speak to you guys next time. Asian Crew out.